Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, we keep hearing about the pressure that healthcare is under with a looming busy season upon them. Also, a new report looking into people who've been diagnosed with COVID and, and what that means for them going forward and going after Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers and the name of protesting climate change. Protests like that, are they effective? Do they do more harm than good? We'll find out. I want to get an update about what's going on in our hospitals because, you know, this time of year, every year, things start to ramp up. Things start to get busy. And we know we're in a pretty pressure-filled position already. So just give us a snapshot. You're an ER doc at a couple of the major hospitals in Edmonton. You're there every day. What are you seeing? What's the current status report from ERs in Alberta? So I would say ERs in Alberta and also across all of Canada and talking to my colleagues, they are... Um, uh, much busier than expected already for this time of year. Uh, typically what we do have over the summer months, like in June to August, is a bit of a slowdown. Yeah. We did not have that this year at all. There was, there was no let up. There was no break. And that, um, that pressure has just continued to mount into, into the fall. Um, what we are seeing is, um, uh, much sicker patients. So I did actually, like in preparation for this, look at some of the numbers of what we call our acuity numbers. And so that's how sick people are when they come in. And over the last five years, that acuity number has gone up and up and up. And in particular, in this last one to two years, it's gone up dramatically. And so what that means for us in the ER is that patients are sicker, which means they're more likely to get admitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're more likely to get admitted, they stay in that bed for longer, which means that we can't use that bed to see people. So that concept of bed block that you and I have talked about before, we're seeing that uh, quite dramatically right now. So I was on a shift just yesterday. Yeah. And out of my 20 acute side beds that I was responsible for, 14 of them were admissions, which means that I could not use 14 of those beds. And then the other six were patients that were like waiting for things to be worked up and also possibly be admitted. So you can imagine like just giving you those numbers that what that crunch looks like because our effective space is reduced dramatically. That That is, I mean, that's what, what what's what's typical? Like, you know, I mean, I guess there is no typical day in an ER, but how out of the ordinary is it to see that level of admissions? I haven't seen that level of admissions even, even during the pandemic, before the pandemic. That That's a pretty... That's a pretty high and, and um, unprecedented uh, level of admissions, for sure. What is it? Like, I I can't tell you the number of people I know right now that are sick. They've tested. They don't have COVID, but they're sick. Uh, what's going on right now? Well, I mean, as we head into cooler weather and as we head into uh, more people spending time indoors, viruses just tend to increase. All viruses, right? All cough and cold viruses, stomach viruses, um, people spending more face-to-face time, those numbers are going to go up, and that's typical for this season. And so we're de- and school being back as well. So we're seeing all of these factors contribute to an increase in respiratory virus season, and this is just the beginning, right? So this is still going yeah. to get um, worse over the next several months before it gets better. We're just at the cusp of influenza season. We're seeing our COVID numbers go up as well, and so we're going to see impacts of that as added pressure to the already existing pressure on the hospitals right now. 
What's causing all the pressure? I know staffing levels were a big issue, and of course we had the stories where uh, your ERs, uh, the hospitals you work in, they were told, you know, take it one extra patient per unit more than you can handle so we can get people out of the ER. What's that like in terms of staffing levels and capacity right now? Is that still completely maxed? It's completely maxed, and every time an ask like that is made, which is pretty much every day now, it's asking people, healthcare workers who are already burnt out, to do do more with less or more with the same and so that's kind of the situation that we're in right now. Um, we, we're trying to be as innovative as possible, trying to be as resourceful as possible, because we don't want to have any patients have a negative outcome from uh, the long wait times in the current situation. But at some point, that even that will be exhausted. Um, staffing, still, I mean, lots of shortages. I mean, I saw a story earlier this week where there's like almost a thousand nursing vacancies available with AHS right now. I mean, are you still really, really short-staffed? Uh, yes, we are. We are. Um, it's, there's, there's a lot of nursing turnover, and I, it's certainly understandable just given the amount of uh, burnout that there is in emergency medicine in particular. Um, so lots of turnover, lots of ongoing vacancies, which then affects bed capacity, um, essentially, right? Because if, the, if we don't have the appropriate nursing staff to care for the patients in bed, those beds don't get to be open yeah. because it's unsafe. I wanted to ask you, and you might not have the answer to this, but and if you don't, that's fine, just say so. Um, the fact that we see rural ERs closing or limiting their time that they're open and things like that, and um, the fact that we also see, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, family docs. It's really hard to get a family doc. Does, does that end up filtering down into your ERs ultimately? If they can't see a doc in a rural area and they can't find a family doc, they just go to the ER. Does that add to it? Oh, 100%. So what we've seen over the last two to three years is we've seen family doctors leave the province. We've seen patients, like more and more patients who are not able to find a family doctor. And yeah. if they don't have a family doctor that can address their issue, um, then of course the, e- the ER sees everybody, right? We, we will and we have to and we, and we should. However, if there are things that can be managed by a family doctor, of yeah. course that's ideal. The problem is that if you don't have one to see even your minor issue, then maybe you wait or maybe you come to the ER. But if you wait, then you get sicker and sicker. And when you do end up coming to the ER and needing emergency care, you're much sicker than if you had seen your family doctor, which who could have prevented it from, from happening to begin with, right? And so that, that lack of primary and preventative care is having a big impact on, on how sick people are getting when they come to the ER and just the number of people that are coming to the ER as well. Yeah, and no question about it. So I guess the final thing is here, how do we stay out of the ER for, for people who are you know trying to not add a burden to you and to and to stay healthy what can we do heading into what is always a busy time if you're not vaccinated for influenza and COVID-19 already please do that that will prevent you from uh getting sick and also having severe illness so number one get vaccinated for influenza and COVID-19 if you don't have a family doctor uh, do your best to find one Uh, oftentimes uh, if you have a family member that has a family doctor oftentimes that family doctor may be able to take you on um, call 811 first uh, because sometimes they can um, give you advice over the phone or give you a sense of whether it's something that you should go into the ER uh, for. And then, I mean, I have all these videos on Instagram that talk about yeah. um, that talk about uh, different things that I'm seeing in the ER where you might be able to manage them at home. So checking those out as well. Um, I'm on Instagram, TikTok, uh, Twitter, and Facebook. So come and find me there and check out those videos and maybe 
uh, it has it lines up with what you're uh, what you're wondering about, and it might be able to give you some information. Yeah, and you've gone through things like fever, all kinds of stuff. You know, just the common questions that come up that maybe you can handle this at home, and you don't have to go to the ER, which nobody wants to do. Yeah, and in particular for this season coming up, I have one already on fever. I have one on cough as well, and so those are two very common things um, in adult and pediatric patients that I see, and so. Uh, that may just give you some information on on um, when you actually do need to come to the ER. Dr. Mathani, great, great, great insight as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Shazma Mathani. She's an emergency room physician at the Royal Alec in Edmonton and at the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton. Frontlines. A new study just out um, this week talking about COVID patients and their interaction with the healthcare system. Now, this is not, we're not talking about COVID patients that are sick with COVID now. We're talking about people who had COVID in the past, tested positive for COVID, um, call it long COVID maybe, um, but how they end up interacting with the healthcare system quite frequently, more so than people who didn't get COVID, I think. But let's find out. We are going to chat with um, one of the study's authors, who's also an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Research Institute in Toronto, Dr. Candice McNaughton, joining us now. Dr. McNaughton, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for your time. So let's just, uh, this study, that you, did, I, did I sort of sum it up? Basically, it's to see how people who've had COVID previously find their healthcare experience going forward, and, and whether they're you know more involved with healthcare or not. You nailed it. Um, that's exactly what we did. We were very curious to see what happened in the months after individuals had tested positive for COVID. So for this particular study, we started looking at healthcare use two months after their initial positive test. Okay, so we hear a lot about long COVID. I don't know anybody with long COVID. I've heard lots of people. T- is that what you're talking about here? Does this have to be like a diagnosed long COVID patient or is just anybody who had COVID? We looked at anybody who had long, uh, I'm sorry, anybody who had um, been tested for COVID. Okay. Uh, we, we didn't limit it to individuals who'd been diagnosed with long COVID, in part because we're still trying to figure out what that is and what it means. Um, and we really wanted to sort of look more broadly and say, you know, regardless of whether or not they've been diagnosed, how are people doing after the infection? And you did look very broadly. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of, of different patients you looked at, right? I mean, this was a big, big study. Yeah, uh, uh, just over half a million uh, adults. Yeah. And what did you find? I mean, ultimately, did you find that people who'd had COVID were more likely to end up back in a healthcare situation in the future? That's exactly what we found. Uh, and what was particularly interesting is that... Um, so on average, sort of most people had a slight increase in their healthcare use, and we looked at different types of healthcare use. We looked at uh, clinic visits, we looked at emergency department visits, we looked at home care encounters, we looked at hospital days, uh, you know, number of days that individuals were hospitalized, and we looked at long-term care days. And we found a few things that were very interesting, and we hope that will be useful for individuals in leadership and healthcare who make decisions about how resources are allocated. Um, What we found was that first there was a difference from men and women. Women in particular had more of an increase uh, sort of across the board, across the types of healthcare encounters uh, that compared to men, but both did have an increase. And the other thing we found was that most people experienced a small increase, but between one and five percent of individuals who tested positive, those individuals really had a significant increase in their healthcare use. So 
So while most individuals are doing okay and only need a little bit more healthcare use even months after their infection, a subset of individuals, one to five percent or so, really have significant increased healthcare needs. And that's what our concern is because this is occurring at a time when, um, you know, we don't have the capacity to absorb it. Yeah. As you mentioned, I mean, as I was listening as you came on, and I'm an emerge physician as well, I mean, we're all seeing it and we're already it feels like sort of past a breaking point already. And, and to add something like this, uh, sort of the way that we described it in the paper is for a family medicine physician pre-pandemic, if they had 20 visits per day scheduled and about half of everybody in Canada has gotten COVID in the sort of recent past, um, that means that the family medicine doctor in the next year is going to have to come up with time and energy and resources to, for an additional 100 clinic visits. And when you multiply that by all of the different family medicine yeah. doctors that we have, I mean, it just adds up. Um, and the other big issue, is, especially from my perspective as, a, as an eMERGE physician, is the, the increased number of days that these individuals will need in the hospital. And we already don't have very many hospital beds. I mean, we see very frequently individuals spending their entire hospitalizations in the hallways in our emergency departments. And for 1% of individuals who are infected, they're going to need an extra week almost in the hospital per year, um, that's something that, uh, you know, looking at it from my perspective as an eMERGE physician seems overwhelming to consider what the implications of our, you know, are we going to have enough capacity to take care of people who have appendicitis or cancer or strokes or heart attacks on top of the long COVID uh, wave that we're likely to be needing to take care of. You know, while I've got, we just spoke with Dr. Shazam Matheny, an ER doc in Edmonton, and she, you know, and, and, and some of the issues that they're facing, they've been facing for quite a while. You know, it's a shortage of staff, it's limited capacity, there's a bottleneck that seems to move throughout the system. Like, she tells us that, you know, she's got patients in, in the ER that she can't move on because there's no space in the unit, and that means that mm-hmm. people in ambulance can't get moved in. I mean, it's just sort of one thing, it's a chain reaction. What's it like where you are? At, at Sunnybrook, is it is it a similar experience, or is there something different in your part of the country? You know, it, it sounds like you're describing uh, exactly what we're experiencing. And, and when I talk to other eMERGE physicians uh, locally, and I have to be honest, even internationally, uh, you, know, you know, sort of across the country here, but also in other countries, um, there seems to be uh, a, a general consistent um, sense that we are experiencing sort of um, unprecedented needs for healthcare across the board. And it also feels like um, sort of broadly, and I'm not in politics, I'm not in any sort of policy making, but it, it feels like we maybe were not as prepared as we could have been mm-hmm. uh, for this stage um, because it sort of feels like we um, sort of knew this was coming. And this is part of the reason that we did this study is to really sort of Brass tacks. What are we looking at yeah. in terms of uh, how many, how much more support do we need for primary care providers? How much more support do we need for home health? That was one in particular that stood out for women in particular. Their needs for home health were drastically increased for one to five percent of individuals, and it was much higher for women than it was for men. Um, so it raises concerns about are we going to be able to support um, people who need help? 
um, with their help. And Doctor, you know, I know in listening to you and to Dr. Metheny, I think for some people it's probably very concerning. The fact that we're heading into what we know is a busy time of year anyway when it comes to the healthcare system. And the alarm bells are going out. And um, family doc in Alberta, yeah, good luck. If you don't have one, it's pretty tough to find. The waits to get into one are really, really long. So, I mean, what can what a report like this, how can it be useful to, to Canadians? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it sends up some alarm bells, but what's your hope? On the one hand, we're really hopeful that uh, individuals who are in leadership positions can take this information and use it. On the other hand, I also am hopeful that as individual Canadians, um, we can really sort of say, you know what, um, I'm going to do everything I can to keep myself and my family members as safe as possible. Yeah. And so this gets back to sort of, you know, the tried and true uh, things that we know to try to stay help- healthy, especially as you pointed out, going into the flu season, which sounds like it's going to be really rough. And already in the pediatric hospitals, we're out of capacity um, in, in, you know, with all the viruses circulating. Um, so things like wearing a mask indoors. I mean, you know, we don't have mandates and we don't really we don't necessarily need them if we can all just yeah, wear exactly. masks appropriately. Um, getting our boosters, staying up to date on all of our vaccines, influenza vaccines, as well as our COVID vaccines. Indoor air quality is another thing, you know. It's sort of like universal precautions or, you know, the way that we have sewer systems. If we were able to clean the air through ventilation and filtration to a better degree than we do currently, we really could make a huge dent on so many different uh, conditions that are communicable. And it would be to all of our benefit. I mean, you know, indoor air filtration would be beneficial in uh, wildfire seasons. You know, anytime there's uh, an increase in pollution, you know, all of those things are things that we can have an impact on um, on an individual level. And then, you know, within our communities, we don't have to wait for the government to tell us uh, what we should and shouldn't be doing in, to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's it, we, we've been through it, right? We know how yeah. to try and mitigate it. So, uh, Dr. McNaughton, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm going to have a conversation here that I think... Uh, it's a question a lot of people have been asking over the past few days. Going back to last Friday, and we told you the story on Friday, two activists with the group Just Stop Oil walked into the National Gallery in London and tossed a can of tomato soup on a priceless painting by Van Gogh. Sunflowers. You've seen it. Trust me. If Even if you don't know, as soon as you saw it, you'd go, oh yeah, I know that one. Um, it is one of the most important pieces in the National Gallery in London. It is worth untold millions. I don't know if you could put a price on it. I saw somebody say about 85 million maybe, but I, uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, one of the activists, Phoebe Plummer, who's 21, threw the soup at the painting and then said, are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? Um, she and another 20-year-old, Anna Holland, both arrested by London police and are now facing charges. Important to point out, there was no damage done to the painting. It's covered by glass. Uh, most of the paintings in galleries are. Um, and the processor said they knew that ahead of time. They knew they wouldn't be damaging the painting. But after they uh, threw the tomato soup, they then put super glue on their hands and glued themselves to the walls of the National Gallery. So there was the process of getting them freed from the walls and then taken into custody. question a lot of people are asking is, I mean, this is a stunt, right? Uh, is it effective? Could it be counterproductive? What's, uh, what's the thinking? So um, for that conversation, we're going to chat with Tara Mahoney, who's a Vancouver-based advocate and has years of experience in putting together 
these various movements, social movements like this, trying to get ordinary people engaged in the climate crisis discussion. Tara, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. So this incident that we saw in London on Friday, it's got international headlines. What's your reaction when you heard the story and you saw what was you what, what did you think? Um, I, I mean, I think my first reaction was one of um, empathy for the young people who were who are doing it. Um, I, I mean, to me, it, it speaks to the desperation that you feel around climate change. Um, you know, imagine how how you must feel if you're, I think they were like 19 or 20. Yeah, 20 and 21, and I think, yeah. 20 and 21. And, um, you know, you, the, you're reading the reports from uh, various government and, and UN and the UN about climate change, and it's saying, you know, the future looks very bleak, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and people are contemplating whether or not they want to have kids and, and, and whether they, they even be able to uh, work uh, a, a regular job because, you know, the, the climate breakdown and things like that. And so I think, I think young people are very, very scared and desperate. And when you're scared and desperate, you do things like this. And I think they, they're reacting to the lack of action from government and they're reacting to the lack of action from the fossil fuel industry who refuses to, to act in a way that's going to make a meaningful difference in, in, uh, these, in the trajectory of climate change at, right now. I mean, hopefully this, context changes but as we can see right now the the amount of action that's being taken by at a structural level is nowhere near what we need to be doing so yeah to me i i felt empathy for them yeah and i think you know what a lot of people would agree with you in terms of it's a cause that we we need to be paying attention to we need to be working on and we need action on um as someone who's put together the kind of efforts to try and engage more people and get more people involved what happened on friday in london does that help well, do you think it will work? Because I know there's a lot of people that were laughing, a lot of people that were angry. And like you say, there was a lot of people that thought, yeah, good for them. This is something that's important. So do you think it's at the end of the day, did it help or did it hurt their cause? Um, I think it helped. I mean, we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And people all over the world are talking about it. You're always going to have, you know, a, a diversity of reactions to something like this because it is dramatic and it is, you know, you are. You, as you mentioned in the uh, in the outset, there, you know, it's a famous painting. It's worth a lot of money, and that's why they chose it. And so, it, it's gonna it's gonna cause a polarizing reaction. I don't think that's surprising, but I think the these tactics, you know, are complementary. So, and, you know, we need everybody doing everything at this point. You know, we need policy people working on policy. We need teachers working on education. We need people working at a neighborhood level. We need people working on food security. You know, we need everybody to be doing absolutely everything that they can and so this is one this is one tactic this is one way to get attention to get people talking to wake people up a little bit and to to you know communicate that sense of desperation that i talked about earlier that i think young people feel so i do think it works um, I, you know, like I said, you're not going to win over everybody, yep. but it got us talking. It certainly did. And I mean, in terms of raising awareness, there's no question it, it did the job. As someone who's worked on campaigns and put together these kinds of efforts to get more people talking about it, what, what, what is, do you think the most effective way? Um, like you say, this will upset some people, might help draw some people to their cause. I mean, I, is there one way of just sort of being all positive like there's going to be backlash to this i mean it's a polarizing issue right so is that just something that you need to accept on this front um 
Not necessarily. Like, like I said, I think this is one sort of style of climate activism. Um, another, you know, more, I guess, constructive or sustainable style or accessible, I guess would be a better word, um, is like the neighborhood level stuff. You know, like yeah. I work uh, lately, I've been working a lot on um, kind of climate preparation and adaptation efforts. And that stuff really seems to um, bring people together in the sense of like, you know, if your home is at risk for, you know, you live close to a yep. body of water or your, you know, I have two young kids. If your young kid's health is at risk because it's extremely smoky, like it is in Vancouver right now, you want help. You want, you, you want to work with people to figure out how to keep your family safe. And so I find that that mode of engagement, especially as an entry point into climate action, um, brings people in from all different walks of life. And then you can start talking about about, you know, how do we keep each other safe? How do we help each other? And that seems to be, um, yeah, a depolarizing way of doing it. But like I said, I mean, I think I think all tactics are, are valuable at this point. Um, but yeah, that, I think there's other ways of doing it that bring bring people together in a in a constructive kind of dialogue in a in a, a way that they can mutually help each other. Yeah, yeah, great conversation, um, Tara. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews. You can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.